4th is over and I wouldn't be offended. If you, on July 5th you put your tree up, I'd be okay with it uh, because I absolutely love this time of year. Uh, we have kicked off our Advent celebration by lighting the Hope candle uh, this morning. And we will, of course, uh, light the rest throughout the season. And then in the middle, we have uh, the Christ candle, which we'll light uh, on Christmas Eve. Our, our sermon series is built around those themes as well. I mentioned earlier the Advent devotion, After Darkness Light, uh, that we have for you. That is something we have produced. I really hope uh, that you will uh, use it. If I'm being selfish, I will confess to you, I, I spent a lot of time writing it, so I really want you to use it, okay? Um, and it is going to be uh, something you want to start today, so you can go ahead and download it. We have it in PDF form, and we also have it in, uh, if you're an iBooks user, uh, we have it in iBooks form, and if you're a Kindle user, we have it where it should uh, translate to your Kindle pretty easily. Um, if you want a printed out copy, we, we didn't print them because it is a lot of uh, pages, but if you want a printed out copy, uh, you can let the church office know and we'll see what we can do for you there. Uh, but uh, we are going to move through these themes together over the next uh, month. Uh, this word Advent that you have heard today, it comes from a Latin word that means coming. And so when we celebrate Christ's first Advent, we're celebrating His first coming. And when we speak of His second Advent, we are speaking of His second coming. And built into the concept of Advent is this idea of waiting. Because Israel waited for their Messiah to come. And he did come, and he lived a perfect life, and he fulfilled the law. He was born of a virgin, uh, never sinned, and then died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And he rose from the grave to bring victory to his people, and he ascended on high. But before he did, he commissioned the disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. And we are still going about that work. That's what the Christmas lights that we have in the parking lot are all about. We're trying to connect with people and, and hopefully uh, invite them to believe the gospel and then disciple them and see them grow up in Christ. And then they replicate that as they uh, share the good news of the gospel and they disciple others. Uh, but as we go about that work, we are all doing what Israel did as they waited for Jesus, right? We too are waiting because we're waiting for another coming of Christ. We're waiting for the second advent of Christ when he returns and he establishes his kingdom fully and finally. We have titled this advent series after our advent devotional, After Darkness Light. This is a phrase the reformers used during the Protestant Reformation to celebrate the work that God was doing in Europe. In fact, in the city of Geneva, where John Calvin taught and he pastored, they actually minted that phrase into their coins in Latin, post tenebris lux, which means after darkness light. Europe had been cast into hundreds of years of darkness because the gospel had been obscured. The church took traditions and the, the word of their leaders and they placed it on the same plane of authority as the scriptures and, and truly it was even higher than the scriptures. The scriptures were rarely understood by common people like me and you. And the only gospel they heard was one preached by the church that was devoid of grace and it was steeped in man-made law and in man-made theology. 
But as the Wycliffs and the, the Zwinglis and the Luthers and the Calvins all made their charge to see the church recover the Scriptures as the supreme rule and to see the Gospel preached again, light broke through the darkness. And so they would say to one another, after darkness, light. And I love that so much, and as I thought about Christmas, I believe that after darkness, light is an appropriate theme for our Advent season. Israel waited in darkness for Egyptian slavery to end and for the exodus to come. Israel waited in the darkness of the wilderness for the promised land. They waited in the darkness of exile for freedom and to be able to return home. They waited through the darkness of four centuries of silence as God's prophets stopped speaking for another prophet to speak, and he did speak, and his name was John the Baptist. And they waited for centuries for the light of the promised Messiah to come. And now you and I wait. We wait in the darkness of a lost world as sojourners and exiles for Christ to come in his second advent. And so after darkness, light is not just the story of the Reformation. It's the story of Advent. It's the story of the church. It's the story of God's people waiting on their Lord. And a good place for us to begin this morning is Isaiah 40. Because in Isaiah 40, we see how as the people of God wait, they wait in hope. Isaiah 40 is the beginning of the third major section of Isaiah's book. Most of this portion is about the coming exile at the hands of the Babylonians. God's people were in sin. They, 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 they were uh, being warned that they needed to repent of their sin and come back to the Lord. If not, God was going to discipline them. And they uh, ignored the warnings from the prophets and so now exile is going to happen. It is looming, and it's going to happen. And Isaiah 40 through 55, it, it's filled with all of these answers to anticipated questions. And it's kind of like when you're talking to your kids, and uh, you, you give them answers to questions they didn't necessarily ask, but you knew they had those questions in their mind. Isaiah's kind of doing that this morning. So let me give you some examples, because it'll help us understand our passage. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so that's an answer to an anticipated question. The question the people had is, has our sin separated us uh, from God forever? They had been taken out of their land and they were uh, in Babylon, and they were wondering, will we never get to go home? Will we never be back in, in favor with God? The answer, of course, is no. Their sins had not separated them from God forever. He is with them. He is their God. He will strengthen them. He will help them. In 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. That's an answer to an anticipated question. The question is, has God been defeated by the gods of Babylon? And the answer is, of course, no. The gods of Babylon are not really gods. There is no one but God who is truly God. And so that's going on in Isaiah 40 as well. In the first 11 verses, the anticipated question is, has God cast his people away forever? And the answer is no. God is there to comfort his people and the promises of his word remain true. And then in verses 12 through 26, the question is, can God deliver his people? The answer is yes. No one's greatness compares to the Lord. He can deliver them. They just need to lift up their eyes, remember who he is. 
And then the final anticipated question of chapter 40 is this. What do the people of God do as they wait on his deliverance? What do the people of God do as they wait on his deliverance? And we get the answer to that question this morning. As God's people wait, they must wait in hope. So let me read for us Isaiah 40, starting in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my uh, right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, I pray you would help us to understand what's in the Bible this morning, that you would help us to be able to read it and, and to clearly uh, to, to be able to take in with our hearts and our minds what you're saying to us, and that uh, the message of hope that we see in these verses will meet us right where we're at this morning. And, um, and we ask God that our hearts would not be rebellious, that we would be um, yielded before your word, that as we come to the word, we would recognize that we are in need and that the, the change that your word brings is something that, uh, that we need in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three observations this morning about those who wait in hope. Number one, those who wait in hope require a raised view of who God is. They need a raised view of who the Lord is. But let's go back and understand a little, little bit of history. How did Israel end up in captivity in the first place? Right? I mean, all of the work, they're, they're in slavery in Egypt, and the, they're delivered uh, by the power of God through Moses, their leader. And then all of that meandering, right? All of the rebelliousness and the meandering to get back to the promised land, finally to get back to the promised land. How in the world do they end up back out of the promised land in exile in Babylon? Well, there was a fight over taxes. Isn't that how it always happens? Right? There's a fight over taxes between... Ten tribes in the north of the kingdom and the two tribes in the south of the kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, they split in 930 B.C. They break up. And both kingdoms, honestly, are spiritually rebellious. The northern kingdom, because they do not repent and they are disobedient to God, uh, they are disciplined by God when he allows the Assyrians to come in and carry them off into captivity in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, they experience a little bit of a revival under the reign of King Josiah from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. But toward the end of his reign, the kingdom starts to slide back into their immoral behavior again. It was a society that was morally disintegrating. From the leaders at the top down to the common people, the entire nation was in sin. They were ignoring the Lord, they were ignoring his promises, and, and any sort of spirituality that did exist was just sort of a ritualistic going through the motions. Their culture was marked by greed and deception, by immorality and hate, a lack of justice, an abundance of hypocrisy. 
And so this prophet named Habakkuk prophesies at the tail end of Josiah's reign as the nation is backsliding into their rebellion against God's law. And here's what he says. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Isaiah prophesied a century before that about what it would be like right before Babylonian captivity. In Isaiah 59, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. So what does a good father do when his children are being rebellious? He disciplines them out of love with the hope that they would be redeemed, that they would be reformed, that they would be changed. And so this is what he does. And he warns them that discipline is coming. Like Assyria came against the north, the new world power Babylon will come against the south. Habakkuk warned them of this. He says, look among the nations, see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're conquerors. They go around and take what's not theirs and claim it for their own. The southern kingdom of Judah thought, we've got a temple. You know, the temple's here. Jerusalem is here. Bethlehem is here, David's town. Surely the Lord would not allow a foreign nation of non-Jewish people to come in and take the promised land and carry us off into captivity. What happened to the north with the Assyrians, no way he would let that happen to us in the south. But that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to allow the Babylonians, who are also known as the Chaldeans, to come in and God will use them as a rod of sanctifying discipline. And the prophetic words of Isaiah and Habakkuk, as well as prophets like Jeremiah, came to pass in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered Judah and carried their best and their brightest off into captivity. This was a dark time for the people. I preached on this passage this past Wednesday night. Psalm 137, starting in verse 1. Here's a picture of what it looked like for them to be exiled. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So they sat down beside the the Tigris and the Euphrates, those are the, the waters of Babylon, and they're crying as they remember home. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They took their instruments of praise and they hung them up in the willow trees and they sat down by the rivers and they cried as they were being mocked by the Babylonians who were saying, yeah, play us one of your little songs from home. Not because they had any genuine interest in it, but because they wanted to make fun of them. So yes, the people of God would have been wondering, are we now outside of God's plan? Are we beyond His forgiveness? Are we beyond His love? Has He forgotten us? Has He written us out of His will? 
Has he written us out of his inheritance? Are we going to die in a foreign land separated from God's love beyond all hope? Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Maybe you walked in here this morning feeling this way. Like you've been written out of the will of God, like maybe God doesn't love you or God has forgotten you because of something that's going on in your life. And even if you know deep down because of theology that you've learned and Bible studies you've sat in and and things that you've been taught, even though you know deep down it's not true, emotionally, that's how you feel. With all the moral destitution and brokenness around us, you might start to feel like an exile that's never going to make it home. In fact, the New Testament speaks to you this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, you're not in exile because God's disciplining you, but it's a metaphor for the life that we live. Believers are headed toward heaven. We have no lasting city here. We might have addresses on our mailbox, but this is not where we ultimately are going to live forever. Once God became our Father, through Christ our Savior, this world was no longer our home. We now represent a different kingdom, and we long for the day when we are in that kingdom for good forever. But until then, we live in a world that is not unlike Habakkuk's world. Judah, at the end of Josiah's reign, sounds a lot like Western culture in 2021. Violence, injustice, evildoing, oppression, conflict, divisions... Habakkuk used those words to describe Judah. We could use the same words for our own age. Society is corroding all around us, and maybe you feel like exiles on the banks of the rivers in Babylon. You just want to stop singing. You want to sit down. You want to weep. You quietly wonder, has God forgotten me? Or maybe you're wondering that loudly. And so here is Isaiah's answers to your questions and to Judah's questions at the end of verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is who God is, and the people seem to have forgotten that. And so he's told them, back up in verse 26, lift your eyes up. Right? Lift your eyes up and see who has created the heavenly hosts. And then in verses 27 and 28, he's asking, you know, why would you think that you're hidden from God? Why would you think that he has disregarded you? Why would you think that he's forgotten uh, about you? Have you forgotten who he is? Do you not know? Have you not heard? This is not some tribal deity. This is not some God who was made up in a fairy tale by the figment of man's imagination. This is the true God of the universe, the only God. He is everlasting. And that speaks to His eternal nature. There is no beginning with God and there is no end with God. I have a beginning, right? And I'm going to have an end at some point in terms of my life. But God is not like us. There's no succession with Him. Which means nobody is going to inherit his place, and he didn't inherit his place from anybody else. He's perfect, and he always has been. He's not growing in strength. 
He's not decreasing in strength. He has the same perfect strength from eternity past all the way into eternity future. He is everlasting. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said, He is what he always was, and he is what he always will be. And I love that. How much security is there in that to know that our God is what he always was, and he is what he always will be. He is everlasting and he does not change. He's creator. Right? This is how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created. He's the only creator. And he's the only uncreated one. He is the source of life. He's totally independent, unlike the rest of creation. All of the rest of creation are dependent on something or someone here on the earth. God is not dependent on anything He transcends creation, which means he stands above and beyond what he has made, and yet he's also intimately involved in it. He's powerful. He creates everything from nothing. He created man from dirt. He created woman from man. And in all of these acts of creation, he was displaying his unrivaled power. His creation shows that he is sovereign and that he is in control. It shows us that he's brilliant and that he is beautiful. Right, The brilliance and, and, and the beauty of creation itself reflect the one who has made it. His creation shows that he's gracious to give us life in the first place. It shows us he's personal because he speaks life into existence and he breathes life into man's nostrils. And when the book of Genesis tells us that he made woman from Adam's rib, the Hebrew verb there literally means to build. He built her from Adam's rib. It's personal. To say God is creator is to say that God stands alone. There is no one like him. When Isaiah asks the question, who created these in verse 26, there is only one answer. It's God. The everlasting God. He's also inexhaustible, right? This is what Isaiah means when he says that he does not faint or or grow weary. He's limitless in his energy and in his power. You and I get tired. We need a nap. We need a good night's sleep, right? You, You can get to that point where you hit a wall and you cannot proceed without rest. This is not the way that God is. He never needs a rest. When he did rest on the seventh day of creation, he stopped working. So he rested in the sense that he stopped working, but he didn't rest because he couldn't take the rigor of creation anymore and he needed to sleep. Never needs an Advil. You cannot exhaust him. And he's unsearchable. The understanding and the wisdom of God are unsearchable. You see the same idea expressed by Paul in Romans. If you've ever read the book of Romans, uh, basically what happens there is for 11 chapters, you get maybe the most complete picture of theology in the New Testament. So it's 11 chapters of wading through a lot of heavy sort of Bible teaching, a lot of theology to understand. And as you get to the end of that 11 chapters, Paul, who has written all of this out, it's like he just can't take it anymore, and he breaks out of the way he's been talking, and he busts into poetry. He busts into song at the end of chapter 11, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable are his ways. When he says unsearchable, the word that he uses literally means untraceable. 
The wisdom of God and the ways of God are incomprehensible to us. Our finite human minds cannot fathom the size and the scope of God's intelligence and brilliance. If He were to reveal to us just a sliver of His full plan for all of history, it would break our little brains. It's only by His grace that He reveals Himself to us in His Word, and then His Spirit helps us to understand the Bible and everything that we need for in life and godliness. And so in saying all of these things about the Lord in verses 27 and 28, what Isaiah is doing is he's putting doctrine about who God is before the people of God, and he's calling on them to have a doctrinal refresh. You know when you're on your phone, and we've gotten so spoiled now where we want everything to happen very fast, okay? And, and I, I'm of the generation where I remember the all that stuff that used to happen when you signed on to AOL. Do you remember that? Um, and nobody could be on the phone in the house and you get on the internet at the same time, right? Those were the dark ages to my children. Um, they can't even imagine a time like that. But you know, now we get on our phone and if, if the website's not popping up immediately, what do you do? You hit the little circle arrow, right? It's time to refresh. This is what they needed to do. They needed to refresh doctrinally. Some of us need to refresh doctrinally this morning. You're waiting, and it's wearing you down, and you need to remember that God is everlasting. You need to take hope in the fact that your circumstances might change and change in a way that rocks your world, and and, and you you don't like it, you don't love it, and you want none of it. They were in a foreign land, right? A lot had changed for them, but God has not changed. His eternal nature was the same as it was when they were in Jerusalem and they were worshiping in the temple. We need to remember that God has not changed. Like them, we need to remember that He is the Creator. And we can take hope in the reality that all of the nations, Babylon and any other nation, are are just grasshoppers to Him. He is in control over all of history. We need to recall that He does not faint or grow weary and take hope in the fact that we might be beaten down, we might be barely hanging on as we wait on His return, but He is steady. He's in control as ever. And we need to remember that He is unsearchable. We might not fully understand His plan, but He does. And He's not worried about it. Our greatest need during this Advent season is not more busyness. I'm sure you've got plenty of that. And it's not more screen time. I love, you know, I love a good Christmas movie. I I don't like the Hallmark ones, if you're into those. It's not my thing. It's all the same, you know. But I know for some of you, you like that. You're into it, and, and I don't shame you for it. Okay? I truly don't. But you don't need more Christmas movies this season. I mean, watch them, have fun, but that's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not more screen time. The the shows on Netflix, the games on your phone, the scrolling on social media, talking heads on political TV, they're not going to bring you hope in exile. Not going to bring you hope as you wait. It's not even more tradition. You can go through all the motions of Christmas celebration and be completely empty on the inside. Your greatest need is a renewed sense of who God is by spending time in the Word finding out more about him, studying his character, remembering that he's unchanged, that he's sovereign over the earth, that he's not going to faint, he's not going to forget you, that he's got a wise wise plan that he's weaving together in time. 
Second observation. Number two, we, we need a doctrinal refresh. Number two, we need to wait and hope. Uh, those who wait and hope have strength in their suffering. So as we wait, we wait on strength while we suffer. And we see this in verses 29 through 31. While God does not faint, guess who does faint? You and me. Right? We, we lose our might. Even the most energized among us lose our might. Kids and young people, right? They hit a wall at some point. My, my middle son, Everett, has more energy in his thumb, right, than I have in my entire body for a month at a time. Okay? Like when he just goes to get a snack, it's like a rhino tearing down the hallway. He's bouncing off of the walls. He's ripping the, clo- the pantry door off the hinges. He's searching through everything, and then he bounces back into his room, and then we hear a big thud as he lands in his bed. And this is, that's just like the 30-second process to get a snack. I don't know where he gets it from. He's just running, moving all the time. Sometimes I just want to tell him, just go take laps. All right, five laps, and then you come back in the house. And I'm going to see you until you take five laps. He, he is just on fire. But he hits a point, usually around 8 o'clock at night, where he gets this look in his eyes where I know, right, the light's on, but there's nobody in the attic. You know what I mean? Like, he, he's, he's kind of lost it. He's hit a wall. And it's not too long after that that he just passes out. So even those among us who have the most energy, at some point you hit a wall and you've got to sleep. And the good news of these verses is the Lord will give power to you when you faint. He will increase the strength of those who lose their might. We see this in verse 29. He will take those who are waiting for Him in hope and He will renew their strength so they can go again another day. So they can face the trials of the next day. Isaiah says they will mount up with wings like eagles in verse 31. The eagle was the lion of the sky in in first century uh, or in ancient culture. It was the lion of the sky. And, and really, the, the eagle is still the lion of the sky, right? The eagle's still the most majestic bird. Right? I, I love eagles. I don't like the ones from Philadelphia, but uh, I love the eagles in the sky. You can't argue with it, right? They, they are the great white shark uh, of the clouds. Did you know that a migrating eagle will fly up to 225 miles in one day? So the reason that they pull for eagles here, that Isaiah pulls for eagles here in his metaphor, it's not just because the eagle is the most majestic bird in the sky, it's because it's the bird that has the best endurance. It can fly and fly and fly and fly. So in using this metaphor, what Isaiah is saying is the Lord will lift you up and the Lord will keep you going and going and going. And that is good news for people who are waiting And when you don't think you can wait anymore, you don't think you can go on anymore, you don't think you can face another day, the Lord is there to lift you up and to keep you flying. He carries this idea out further for the rest of verse 31. You will run and you will not be weary. You will walk and you will not faint. You'll have a spiritual endurance that cannot be matched by even the, the, the physical endurance of the most fit and energetic people on the earth. Like uh, Sometimes I will watch, I, I love watching football, you watch a cornerback, okay? Those are the guys that defend the receivers. 
And they're just, those guys just run. They run and run and run. And, and sometimes these receivers are just running 40-yard fly routes. And they're running with them. And they've got to come back and do another play. And I watch them and I go, I, I can't imagine being in that sort of physical shape. Because when I take the 30-second trip to get a snack that my son takes, I'm winded. You know what I mean? Like, so I can't imagine being in that sort of shape where you can run and run and run and run. And, and not just run, but defend another person and do all that at that high of a level. And here Isaiah is saying that your spiritual endurance, which is supernaturally given to us by the Lord, it will match that of even the most fit, athletic, energetic people on our TV screens or in our lives. Not all suffering, we should say, is a result of spiritual discipline. But some suffering is. Sometimes God will allow you to suffer in order to turn your attention away from idols and away from the sin that we've been seduced by, and He will bring our attention back to Him. Israel had rejected the Lord. They had trampled on His covenant. His covenant was clear. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all His commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. They were not careful. They did not obey. Therefore, they were not high above all the nations of the earth. They were under the thumb of one of them in captivity. And God warned them about this. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The curse of exile was a suffering that God brought about to sanctify His people. He wounded them in order that they would turn back to Him for healing. God is still in this business today. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that He addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Not all suffering is discipline. But if He loves you, He will discipline you because true fatherly love will not stand by while a child does a cannonball into death and destruction. A good father steps in uses discipline to bring about restoration. I don't know if you have discipline in your life this morning, if there's suffering in your life as a result of discipline. I, I don't know that. I will say this, if you're here this morning and you think God is punishing you and you're a Christian, you should remove that vocabulary from your brain. All the punishment you deserve already fell on the shoulders of Jesus at Calvary. He's not punishing you. But if you think God is disciplining you, you might be right. But take hope in the fact that He promises to give you strength even in the midst of trials that come about because of your disobedience. Is that not the promise to Judah? Right? You've sinned. You've sinned egregious, uh, egregiously. You're, you're in exile. You're suffering. Your harps are hanging in the trees but I'll give you strength as you wait on me. Your strength will be renewed. I'm going to keep going here. Number three, those who wait in hope expect something better than what has been. 
Those who wait in hope should expect something better than what has been. In many ways, to know the Lord is to move forward. Like Christian discipleship is a life of progression, moving forward, leaving the sins of the past in the past. Moving forward, pressing on toward what lies ahead. Moving forward is a new creation in Christ. John Oswald says it this way. He says, believers are not trying to get back to the place they started. Once Eden was lost, there is no recovering it. But it is possible to have something even better. The new heavens and the new earth are better than Eden. And the blessings of the redeemed as described in eschatological Parts of the Bible are something better than the blessings of Eden. Eschatological is a fancy word for just saying study about the end times. John Oswald saying that when we look at what the Bible says about the end for believers and the paradise that awaits and, and the glory of being in the presence of God, that it's much better than the Eden that was lost in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And what's hanging over this passage in Isaiah is this promise that what comes after exile is better than what came before it. Judah might be going home to a city that needs to be rebuilt, but at least they're going to be close to their God again. They were in the city before the Babylonians came in and they laid waste to it, but they were far from God. So they were in a city that was standing, but they were far away from their Lord. When they go home, they'll be in a city that was destroyed, that will need to be rebuilt. But even though the city's destroyed, their hearts will be knit intimately to God again. To be close to God in a destroyed city is better than being far away from God in a city that stands. Jeremiah gives them even more hope with his prophecies about the way life is going to be. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Israel failed to keep covenant with God before, but now there's a new covenant coming. That's what Jeremiah was telling them. The law was this external code that they couldn't keep, but now the law is going to be written on their hearts. He will be their God. They will be His people. And at the center of this new covenant is the boy born in Bethlehem. The covenant-keeping God coming in the flesh to save His people and to guarantee an eternal home for them through His life and through His blood. The first advent of our Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah, it secured the reality of the second advent. It secured the promise of His second coming and the promise of a new earth that's better than Eden. It secured an ultimate end to exile. Home, forever and always, in the Savior city, the New Jerusalem. So let us begin our Christmas season by lifting up our eyes and seeing who our God is. And let us wait in hope for every one of His promises to come true. Believing in faith that what is coming is better than what has been. That after darkness there will be light. Let's pray. Father God, we give You praise for the gift of Your Son, Jesus the miraculous gift of Your Son. 
And as the song that we sang earlier said, uh, we behold the wondrous mystery. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that he came for us, that he came to save us, to save his people from their sins. God, we're hopeless without you. We, we, are, we, we would be left in our sin. We would have no hope of heaven, no hope of being with you forever. We would be completely lost for good. There would be no hope candle. If not for your plan, your gospel, where your son came and was not just born in Bethlehem, but went and died in Jerusalem, he was perfect. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die, but he died in our place. All of the wrath and anger you rightfully had toward us for our sin, you poured it out on Jesus instead of us. He was our substitute. And he was born for that mission. He was born to die, but he was also born to resurrect. We celebrate the fact that the child born in Bethlehem resurrected in Jerusalem and defeated sin and death for his people. This is where we draw our hope from this morning, Lord. It's not from a politician. As much as we may love some of our Christmas movies, we don't draw our hope from from. Uh, the world's idea of what Christmas is all about and their message of what Christmas is all about. God, we look to the gospel and we take hope in the fact that Jesus was born and died and rose again for us. I pray that we would not look anywhere else. We don't need to. The only place true, confident expectation can be found is in you the one who does not faint, who does not grow weary, the one who is unsearchable, the one who is inexhaustible, the only creator. We give you all glory this morning in our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The band's going to play here.